Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to the first episode of the second year of Beyond Bitcoin. <laughs> my name is Derek Graham, and I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Nitin Gower. Hello, Nitin. Hey, Derek. Uh, still in the birthday mode, I take it? Yeah, we're still in birthday mode. Yeah. And we're distributing wisdom today because I'd like to start with a very wise quote that someone once gave me, and that is, where there's a will, there's a relative. And, <laughs> and, and I think that's kind of, kind of perfectly setting for what's about to happen. It's also a fair way of interpreting that and saying, where there's a billion, there's a corporation. And where there's like 40 billion, there's a lot of corporations. So let's take a back step to what we're going to chat today about. And of course, um, at the moment of recording, it's eight days, 20 minutes and 43 seconds until the merge block of Ethereum. So by the time you guys are listening to this, there'll be seven days. And so it's getting very close. So just as a quick back approximation. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Just a quick background. Ethereum 2.0 upgrade you know, will bring with it a switch from proof of work to proof of stake. This means instead of miners competing for a block reward, validators will be paid to perform assigned rules and secure the network. It's a vitally important to get this economic stake right and to make sure it works. So to give you an idea of where it's up to already, um, the market cap of Ethereum is about 190 billion. The staking market cap, that is which is staked, is about 21 billion or 10.87%. Currently, if you're in one of these um, staking pools, they're running at between 4.02% for validators and 4.02% and, and, and for validators, 4.56%. So not a bad return. But Coinbase commentators are estimating that this yield could rise from 4.3 to 5.4 and head towards you know annual percentage rates of upwards of 9 to 12 percent per annum jp morgan the famous group that said no one should trade bitcoin actively involved now in this world um, and they look at ethereum 2.0 and they say that it could create a 40 billion dollar staking industry by 2025. Nitin, that's a lot of money and the big corporates <laughs> are swimming around like sharks um, and there's some issues around control and there's some issues around censorship and we thought we might talk about that today and this is a free and open and and uh you know and a, and a blockchain based environment but i think we've probably got to be alert to make sure it stays that way what do you think yeah, no, I think uh, while I'm researching this and uh, just like stablecoin once upon a time, there's so much activity happening around the merge that you need to have intellectual humility to not predict and not 
you know, just, just opine on things that can go right and that can go wrong. And so I think we should spend some time today on two things. One is the censorship resistance, which is a huge topic of conversation. And we'll touch mm. upon that a little bit. The other is MAV, which is the maximum ex extractable value, which actually exists today, but the nature of which would change post-merge. So let's jump on this, right? Ether merge, uh, as we discussed in our last session on merge, has a lot of conversation. And I think we discussed this too. We discussed technical, economical, and legal issues and risks mm. and opportunities that go with it. And I actually went back to basics. In fact, this merge should inspire people to go back to basic of transaction processing on blockchain, where we look at immutability, we look at censorship resistance, consensus. Some of these constructs are computational constructs that lends itself to this trust system making blockchain trustless, which means we, we trust the system and no individuals can come and change. And that is, again, the thesis behind the fact there's no government, there's no printing of money, there's, which is, again, the thesis behind 2008 Bitcoin paper, which led to the entire revolution that we're in at the moment. And merge, which, again, uh, Ethereum was a proof of work, just like Bitcoin, a variation of proof of work consensus is shifting to proof of stake. We discussed the merits that it's gonna be cheaper, faster, better, ESG friendly, less sort of electric usage and, and all mm. that good stuff and still has the same uh, properties, except some of those sort of uh, challenges have emerged uh, as many of them have opined as a lot of in question. And it'll be really interesting to see how this unfolds. And I think two issues with, which we should discuss today is censorship by stakers or validators. We have some examples already. And as I mentioned, the maximal extractable value, right? So here's some context, which I think will shed light on this. Mm. Our favorite agency, OFAC, as we discussed last time, sanctioned Tornado Cash. And some applications like Aave and Uniswap put code and filters that filter any transactions that has direct traces from Tornado Cash addresses. So for example, any, it will not receive any addresses. It'll reject only because they have been, have this filtering mechanism uh, and the wallets are behind those filters only because you're able to, Aave as a lending protocol accepts lending and they can always say no based on certain criteria, which is encoded into smart contracts. And all this is happening at the application layer, which means you're running a business, essentially what DAOs are, they are businesses, and you can choose to run the business the way you like, just like anything else, right? But it was frowned upon um, by the industry, but at the end of the day, it's it's a DAO, it's a business, and they can choose to conduct business any way they like. And as long as people see value, they will continue doing business exactly how we see in, in our real world. And Paxos and Tether and some of the DeFi protocols took a stand and they asked OFAC for specific wallet addresses. And that's an ongoing saga that we should sort of discuss at some other point. Now, proof of stake depends upon validators to verify transactions. And send them to blockchain. So essentially, when you submit a transaction, it goes to a pool. They call it mempool, a very fast transaction. And, and the validator stake is a specific amount. Today, it's about 32 ETH. So you have to have a mm -hmm. capital of a little lower in today's price, $50,000. And that'll make you a validator on the network. And mm -hmm. they have something called a verified delay function that randomly picks validators so that you don't have all the power at one entity. And the Ethereum proof of stake chain is supposed to be censorship resistant, which means that no one should really have control on what gets processed because that is layer one. 
So while the DAOs are businesses, layer one is supposed to be egalitarian, supposed to be inclusive, because that's mm-hmm. essentially the entry point of anybody who wants to do business. Again, going back to our nation state comparison of many of the layer ones. So the community is deciding to, in some cases, slash. So while you're staking, if you have bad behavior or go against the protocol, you get slashed. But if you're validating and, and dedicating your capital, which is 32 ETH, then you get rewarded too. And that yield is about 4.5% per se. So the, there's a penalty for bad behavior, disincentivizing the validators to not to behave properly and make sure everything is in order. Otherwise, they will lose the $50,000 for that cycle of transaction processing. So that's essentially where things are. Now, remember validator's job is to take the transactions and provide sort of ordering services and then eventually gets processed and written to blockchain. That's when the transaction is complete and they have visibility. And if the question is, if protocols like Aave who have already encoded this filtering mechanism in their application layer, what if the validators are able to do that for the OFAC addresses? Because that's layer one. It's a different equation altogether. Mm. Is that then, does that still preserve the status of Ethereum to be a censorship resistant protocol? I'll pause here, Derek, to see if that made sense. And if you have any questions before we move so, on to some so examples. That's, that sort of tears me between the fact that really the Ethereum ecosystem should be a validating accounting system without any emotion or any um, view of what is correct and incorrect. They're just an accounting system. Uh, So one part says that that's the case. I can see them laying down rules associated with the validation process in regards to the, the economics of return, because that's what makes the accounting system work. Uh, But for them to now interpret, who should be transacted and should not be transacted um, is a null is a new realm and certainly one that seems to be outside a blockchain parameter for me. Now, as you say, with um, you know with the Dexes, um, they are a company. They can make that decision. The DAOs are a, are essentially an, an affiliation of people that acts not dissimilarly to a company, and so they can make a decision um, of whether they want to validate. Um, these um, cloaked transactions uh, or these fractionated and cloaked transactions that we discussed the other day. Um, you know, organizations such as Bitcoin Laundry, um, as if you wonder what that was doing. Um, and so I think the question is really an accounting system shouldn't be validating or not validating according to a set of um, various government rules because it's going to be pulled and pushed every which way uh, and and that will lose its new, neutrality. That's my view in the process. But on the other hand, when it comes to ARV, et cetera, um, if they have a view that they don't want to validate those transactions, that's their uh, moral and their financial view, in my view. What do you think? Yeah, no, absolutely. But there are a few underlying. So for example, Coinbase today, will allow institutions to stake Ethereum and they will become validators of transactions, which means that you can have institutional grade, uh, you know, validation, which is gives you again, 4.5% yield. Mm. Doesn't seem like much, but it will get to MEV, which is a higher sort of return that you expect from that. And uh, Coinbase uh, verifies the transactions. It could be under the radar of OFAC. Uh, it's a public company and it could essentially 
you know, begin to do these things. And there was internal debates between, and Coinbase has, may have to adhere to it only because they are, uh, you know, a U.S. entity and they are publicly sort of a public company and they are under the jurisdiction of SEC. So it's it's hard for them to not to comply with some of these areas. And then Ethermine, which is, which I think collectively between Ethermine and Coinbase, you can imagine about close to 50%, which is half, a little less than half of capacity of validators exist. So that's a massive amount of concentration of, of power between Ooh. two large entities. And Ethermine is the largest Ethereum mining pool today and has announced, has announced the launch of staking service as the ETH merge shifts towards proof of stake. Now, it will enable users to earn interest on their ETH as they were staking it, which means you lock your ETH and you get your 4.5% or whatever. And it has today stopped processing Tornado Cash transactions. And it'll, it has committed to continue doing that post-merge. So my question then becomes twofold. One is, enormous amount of power. Vitalik himself has said that, you know, I think whether it's in the passing or it's in Twitter sphere, I personally have not heard him say that, so don't quote me on that, Derek. But I think the was that if you are not in compliance with OFAC and it's okay for a few of these entities to, to censor transactions. And I think that could be a risk to Ethereum in general, only because what gives a power to a few to start messing with transaction processing? What gives a power for a few to stop processing your transactions, especially if your business depends upon it, especially if your payments depends upon it. Let's say you are just, a, we begin to start using them for payments and so you want to send this, you know, your weekly earnings to your family, the reason why we are here in de mm. debating this. And for no knowledge of yours, this happened in the real world, this could happen in the electronic world as well, somehow mm. tainted with Tornado Cash. Next thing you know, you are not able to send your funds because of the concentration risk that many of these validators that impose. So in many in crypto community are outraged at this development as they argue that choosing which transaction to process goes against the core principle and ethos of any blockchain, leave it on Ethereum, and any network, any layer one network is supposed to be open source, supposed to be truly decentralized and inclusive. And I think the debate is that if they start doing these things, then you dilute the value uh, that Ethereum has accumulated over time, which I think today is collectively $110 billion worth of ecosystem, not to mention the various DeFi and DEXs that are sitting on top. I think that to me uh, institutes again, a sense of intellectual humility to see that not only you have technical challenges that we have seen, we've, this is a social experiment too. And how does the community come together? Are we all about trading tokens or do we actually impose that belief system, the ethos that got this community together. And that's something which I'm really curious to see unfold as this um, develops. But how do you impose that upon some major centralized organizations that are seeking to get really pretty solid returns uh, on an asset they have a believed, believed future in um, that sits under regulations in various countries around the world? Uh, yeah. That's challenging because it's actually outside the world of blockchain. It is. And I think that's the challenge that if Coinbase and some of these guys begin to do that, that's why you dilute the value. And, and I think that's what Solana and Cardano are waiting to see because they're the, uh, the other layer one protocols that are sitting on the sidelines waiting for 
uh, have been trying to compete with Ethereum for the longest time and they're trying to find mm -hmm. their itch because they have already begun the journey. In fact, their birth was with proof of stake. So they don't they don't have to deal with the issue with merge. They mm -hmm. have other problems, of course. Yes. Uh, which I think will be is interesting from that perspective. And uh, that I think to me is a lot of conversation with many of the other layer ones to not only diss <laughs> and hoping this happens and community ditches it. But I also think to your point, Derek, there's a lot of money involved. And when that's the case, then there's a lot of motivation to see the system being preserved, exactly like our system today. Mm. And so I think it'll be interesting to see how community revolts. Uh, in bigger scheme of thing, it's not a lot of money, but I think it's still, uh, if there's a massive concentration risk, then many of these players will try to at least have semblance of some level of neutrality in, in the system. And, and that will, of course, hopefully be exposed simply because the transactions are, are transparent. But won't it simply be, um, you know, the people that are wanting to validate on Tornado, et cetera, um, they'll just simply transact through validators that are based in, you know, through different corporations or themselves um, in different countries. And so there'll be a step straight around the US validators and straight around that, that sign. Yeah, but today the entire hash, majority of hash, value because of there's another equation this is this is global macro and geopolitical uh, us is the only place where the energy equation to mining is still okay uh, europe is completely untenable uh india and and many parts of of uh, eurasia has energy energy you know uh, cost st structure issues so a lot of mining and validation activities actually happening in the us uh today what so there's another the angle of that geothermal yeah, but it's still Iceland. Um, I think many of these countries who are uh, part of the entire apparatus, which is the FATF and BIS and everything, they will have to follow the OFAC guidelines. Otherwise, they would be deemed as high-risk countries. And so many of the businesses, including the mining rigs and the power businesses, have to adhere to OFAC rules. So it's hard for them to bypass these rules uh, only because they could be a material sort of participant um, in in that activity, and that could they could be imposed uh, to sanctions, I think. Mm, mm, mm. But there's another issue. So you have one issue, which is, and we can discuss at nauseum about this censorship resistance. And I'm keeping a close eye on this. Second thing is MEV. So let's spend some time on that. So Derek, have you read Flash Boys? It's one of my favorite books. Uh, this is Michael Lewis. <laughs> a lot of a competition to get the faster data feeds to exchanges. You talked, we talked about this prior to the show, yeah. high frequency trading may execute. So the whole idea there was, can I have these trading flow, uh, you know, close to exchanges where I had this high speed network. And if I can get a subsequent response time, I will have visibility into order book. I'll have visibility mm. into the pending orders and I can then mm. manipulate uh, that whole model by front running it uh, or back running it, depending on to my advantage and take advantage of it. Uh, and many of them were doing this until some of the few brokers from, I think, Scotiabank in New York figured this out to say when they submit an order, there's a few blip of seconds and they don't get the same price that they're, uh, they're executing. And, and that sort of was the genesis. In Tradify, front-running refers to traditional sort of you know, publicly unavailable information, supposedly, about future purchases or sales. So you know the orders are coming in. Uh, that's essentially what front-running is. And the maximum extractable value is in context of front-running refers to the value that miners or validators can each earn by reordering transactions mm. inside the block. 
So let's go back to minors and validators. Uh, and this happens today. The equation and the frequency may change drastically post-merge. But minors validator holds the power to prioritize and deprioritize because what do they do? They basically have the pool. They pick the transaction of the pool and they propose the, the, uh, the block and, and that's how they get rewarded. Now from mining, you have the validators, but the process remains the same. Now, if you remember, there was something called EIP-1559. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the Ethereum uh, proposal, which was meant to make gas fees more predictable. Uh, this is post-CryptoPunks and many of the, the projects when gas fees was astronomical and no one could really make sense of it. So now they said, we're going to make it deflationary where some gas will be burned and you would have a base fee, which goes to, uh, you know, which goes towards the fact, figuring out the congestion and you'll have a tip. Tip essentially is the cost, is the reward that miners would make. And so the more tip you add, of course, it makes it more attractive for miners to, to prioritize your transactions because they get paid faster and they get paid more than other transactions. Exactly. And that is one way to, and so what, Many of the, um, you know, many of the miners and now validators will do is find the transaction that have the highest amount of tip, uh, and they can reorder them. And so it doesn't really matter when you submit the transaction if you have very low tip or under under uh, the limit fees, then chances are your your transaction stuck in the pool until the conditions are favorable for that to be picked. It can be one day, four day, ten days, fifteen days, but if you have a high enough transaction, it could be processed right away. Well, it seems unfair. It's happening today. And mempool, which is the construct that keeps track of crypto transactions that are yet to be confirmed by the miners, which means they're not part of the ledger, acts as a buffer zone, like a waiting area. So when you submit transaction, goes to mempool, sits there. Now, what happens with MEV is, it happens in all blockchain, by the way, that, that supports smart contracts. So it doesn't happen in Bitcoin. And that's, and again, plus one for Bitcoin. And they talk about this all the time. The miners and validators send their bots, which go and scrounge these mempools to find sort of the search for profit and transaction fees and are in charge of like the, you know, the, the uh, in many cases are, you know, the validators are, are in charge of choosing and grouping transactions into blocks. And they have complete control over which transactions to pick from mempool in, and include in the blocks. I'll take a short pause in a minute, but you can see combination of how censorship resistance and this thing can give the validators some enormous amount of advantages in how they can control the ordering of your transactions, which is neither decentralized nor inclusive in, in nature to begin with. And I'll like take a short boys, pause. And, and yeah. like flash boys, I'm guessing, as their bots go through and look at that, they'll see the price that they're transacting. And so yeah. they'll be able to determine what the price movement is and they'd be able to step in front of the price movement and do transactions. That's interesting, exactly. isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And the thing is there are different types of MEV. You have arbitrage, exactly what you mentioned, that I can buy and sell in the same transaction. We've seen that with flash loans. There are liquidation events happening. So you can have visibility in saying that if I'm running a validator pool, I have access to memory pools. I can begin to start selling before the transaction gets processed. Uh, I have sandwiching, which is an interesting term that I can buy and before you buy and I can sell after you after you buy. And that way sandwiching the two transactions between to mm -hmm. place my orders because I have access to the mempools. And I think that are some of the attacks that MEVs can do. And in general, Ethereum makes MEV 
easier because transactions are sequential and complex. So complex transactions can, depending on, you know, there has to be an ordering mechanism, right? So I need to pay $5 here and $10 there, so I can do 30 here. So some of those transactions needs to be in certain order. Otherwise you have issues around deadlocks and gridlocks that you don't have enough money to pay for. And mempool creates tons of opportunities for MEV to, to, to occur. And with this concentration of validation, as we discussed in the previous sort of uh, first part of, the sec of, of this podcast, you have a lot more opportunity. So you have sort of a oligarchy emerging of sorts, which has mm. enormous amount of control on this, uh, which I think can be an interesting challenge going forward because every time this happens, you chip away the trust that the network has built over time. And you eventually lose faith of people who are doing business because suddenly it becomes an unfair and undue advantage of either technically savvy or people who have poured in capital to preserve the constructs so they have this undue advantage, which common man may not. So it's going to be intriguing to see whether um, the cost of energy in different countries around the world are going to be able to provide alternatives to the otherwise centralized and US um, regulated uh, validators. Uh, because that might be the only way to balance this position, because I can't see that the regulators are going to want to deregulate um, or they're going to want, although they will force a large corporation to no longer monopolize an area. Um, so the challenge here, which is what we'd always hope would never happen in this space, is that large, um, large monopolies chasing large amounts of money um, are going to be hunting the right to validate these transactions. And if they're doing that, they're doing it in the cheapest, um, in the cheapest location, power location to be able to do that. And currently you're saying that cheapest location is believe it or not in the US of A. So what happens when that cheapest location becomes in the outback desert of Australia or- It's, it's geo, still the same. Is it, is it still the same? <laughs> still the same because it's smart money. At the end of the day, you still need to have 32 ETH and if you look at coin chain analysis top, it's still the lot of, while the transaction volumes and wallet creation has gone up in this tier two, tier three cities in India and Vietnam, as we discussed in past this thing, the concentration of wealth is still in the US and Europe. It's yeah. Amsterdam, London, United States uh, that actually has. And so you still have investments coming from the same rich, folks who can make that investment in infrastructure, who can make this. And so all you're moving is, and by the way, with Ethereum proof of stake, energy is no longer part of the yeah. equation because it's True. no longer mining anymore. It's just yeah. purely staking. So now you're only appealing to the rich. And for people who have one Z2, Z ETH, they get to earn 4.5%. And what's interesting in this whole equation is that validators, so 4.5 is not exactly the most attractive returns especially now with interest rate rates going up every 45 days, as you may have seen. But I think the expectation from the MEV, which is extracting additional value out of this, is expected to be anywhere between 16 to 20%. Wow. Uh, which I think is astronomical for, as a, because at the end of the day, someone's paying for this. So if you're paying, it. uh, you know, it's coming from somewhere, uh, it's the mm. tax that people for submitting transaction would have to pay. And not while everybody not may, may be disadvantaged, some will be. 
whether it's time uh, it takes to process a transaction, move the money, which if it begins to look like uh, three days, then what have you really solved <laughs> to move money? Because you're stuck in the mempool with lowest fee structures. Mm. And in some cases, it could be simple volume to say, hey, I need to process it right away. So I'm just going to pay a higher transition cost. And if you happen to be on the other end of the business, that cost is passed on to you. Look, it's so, intriguing. And it's going to be interesting to yeah. see whether this is going to substantially adversely affect Ethereum. Um, and Ethereum ends up doing only major transactions like tra transferring of of <clears throat> substantial financial transactions or house transactions or equivalent things. Um, and and the, other, uh, the other proof of stake blockchains start taking over a position. I'm hoping that somewhere through this process, uh, the better laissez-faire environment takes over and starts competing. And it forces, um, it forces the proof of stake transactions um, to reconsider their processes and reconsider how they're aggregated. We will see. That's just me looking on the bright side of this. Um, you know, because Ethereum with its, you know, with its buyback process um, of, of its tokenization, where it is tokenomics, where it's actually saying um, we, we burn X number of tokens per annum with its staking returns, um, with its community that continues to grow is starting to look like a really good corporate stock. It's starting to look like a corporate stock that provides dividends, a corporate stock that provides constant um, um, buyback of its stock, um, and a corporate stock that is in a new growth area, in which stage, I guess there's two things that we also have to consider. And, and that is, you know, is this going to become a massive institutional investment parameter? Uh, investment area, such as you know, JP Morgan suggesting with its $40 billion. And the next thing is, is this in fact a security? And if it starts becoming a security because you have an expectation of profit return, then we're going to see another set of regulations trying to attack what Ethereum is in the not too distant future. What do you think, Nidin? No, no, absolutely. And I think I'm I'm very curious now. And I think uh, I was looking at the VC funding, which I do every week to see where the money is heading and where the money is going for new projects. And I also believe that in, in the down market, the bear market we're in, there's some phenomenal projects which are incubating. And there's a lot of money being poured into it. And many of them are, are metaversical in nature. I'm going to use the word again, Derek, ah. which we coined on this show. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I've seen three additional layer one protocols uh, being funded this week. And I am encouraged because I sometimes feel that we have a lot of layer ones, right? We have, yeah. you know, in our own analysis of the, what we do for, you know, for what, what you have done for Portal essentially is looking into, I, I think about a dozen of com compelling layer one protocols, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and imagine there are a lot more being invested into which to me is technically interesting, but I'm also thinking, what are they solving for now, right? We've, we've, and we actually had L1X, Kevin Coutinho from yes. Australia was in this, and he's working on layer one protocol too. So there are three additional layer one that got massive funding. And to me, it just feels like we're starting all over again, that this, all this was, and I believe that anything that comes now after 13 years of experience, it's gonna be better because they know what works, what doesn't work, what the community has rejected 
And so you have newer problems that they will create, but some of these problems will be solved. And I just think that that will be super interesting as to how they will emerge. And, 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 and while, you know, what's interesting this week also, there was a, a two-day session of all the uh, blockchain naysayers. Essentially, they came out. They had a two-day seminar. On, I think all it's called, it was called Blockchain Policy Symposium, I think, I believe, in London. And I was listening on that to say, you know, and it was the completely opposite rhetoric to say, hey, this is all just a scam. This is, and yes, some of it is scammy. I get it. We see this all the time, 3AC and Celsius. But what's interesting is the technology underneath it, the consensus mechanism, the ability for us to have software changed while it's running. It's an amazing feat for what in the industry we call CICD, which is continuous integration, continuous development, that they're writing the code and they're developing the stuff, which to me, imagine if I could do that in the real enterprise, we'll never have any downtime. We can continuously continue to up upgrade code. We can find better way to process transactions. We can find uh, application of the specialized chipset that were made for mining efficiencies. There's so much innovation that, that the industry has given us. Yes, mm. it has had its failings. And so to me, that's, that's exciting as to where the industry is heading, I think. So it's going to be intriguing to see whether the world of uh, capitalism and laissez-faire marketplaces is able to either adversely impact this uh, massive community and this backbone of um, automated accounting systems, um, or whether it's actually going to solve the problem by virtue of supplying solutions at different countries around the world that will enable transactions that aren't restricted by regulations. Um, so yet again, at the beginning of it, you know, where there's a will, there's a relative and where there's a billion, <laughs> there's a corporation. And so, so now there's a lot of billions appearing. The corporations are all starting to take this seriously. Um, I really think this is a stay tuned situation. Let's keep an eye on it along the way and, uh, and, and report back to our listeners. Thanks, Nitin, for another really fascinating exercise. Yeah, and before you go, Derek, I know um, we've had one year anniversary and we're all stoked about the what's to come next year, better quality, better speakers. Uh, since we are wearing black, should we call this two men in, a, two, two men, uh, you know, in black and crypto or should we have two men <laughs> and crypto? Should we change the name or are you okay with Beyond Bitcoin? <laughs> or maybe we should just wear black on days we're not sure about the future. You know what I mean? We can just swap it from white to black. <laughs> on days we're extremely elated about the technology, what it's doing, we can wear white. And on days we think the government's closing in, we'll be wearing black. <laughs> anyway, always good chatting with you, Derek. Indeed. Good on you, Nitin. See you next week. Yeah. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.